Hey everybody, welcome to the Family Jewels True Crime Podcast. My name is Brian Sobolewski and I am your host. Welcome to episode 5 of season 3, Unconscious Motivations. Um, you know, there's a lot of stuff to get to for this episode as I continue to uh, unravel all of the tenets of determinism and some of the things that we have to define before we move forward. So, you know, there has to be a working knowledge of vocabulary of some of the topics that we're going to talk about so that you know exactly what I mean when I say something like unconscious motivations. Now, the subject of the unconscious is huge, huge, huge. Uh, there's no, this is what uh, baffles, I think, so many people, myself included, is that, you know, there's nowhere in the brain that we can find your personality. There's nowhere in your brain that we can find... You know, we have an idea that your emotions come from the limbic system, but how they um, motivate behavior is uh, something else entirely. So it, it's important that we understand this topic of unconscious motivations because it, if we are to believe what psychology says about the unconscious, and I have, Marcel had a very, very unique way of explaining what the unconscious was and, and how huge it was in understanding just humanity in general and yourself. So understand that, that to, to bring about true psychological change, to make changes inherent in your personality is, is very difficult. You know, have you ever been in one of those relationships where you better change? You're like, I can't change. This is who I am. Well, that's all bullshit. Psychology and therapy is it should be designed to get to the root of your belief system. If there's one. <laughs> in my case, I'm not sure there was too much of a belief system in terms of morality, but in the same at the same token, there was a belief system. A belief about myself in the world and my place in reality and whether or not that belief was faulty, whether or not I believed in lies was paramount to me making pivotal changes. Okay, so before we get into all that, I have some notes here. I want to go over the tenets of determinism again, but before we get into all that, let's start with where I am in the whole story. Um, you know, I'm a fresh out of prison, just lost my mom, and I'm diving into, um, you know, regular world. And it instantly, you know, I feel just so different. And it's, I, I think to myself constantly, even today, it's a daily, daily, I don't know, I don't want to call it struggle, but it's, I am always just amazed by normal people. So understand what I, most of my friends are regular people. You know what I mean? Dads and moms and, and um, I, I have never classified myself in that realm. As a matter of fact, it has taken me a lifetime of studying people, studying everything about them, every type of person, so that I knew what face I had to put on to get what I needed from that person or give to that person what they needed and then move on. So in terms of actual human connection, 
I would say that one of the parts of my life that has always suffered is, you know, having a rich social life. I don't have a ton of friends. I prefer being by myself to, you know, being with anybody else most of the time. Now, I know that's unhealthy. I know there's not a lot of balance in that. So I do do my best to try to step out of that. And, um, you know, at the same at the same time, it is it is with great difficulty that I maintain relationships. I have a different set of standards for my friends and that they probably don't even know about. So as I was trying to adjust to the world, keep in mind that I had, I wasn't adjusted to the world prior to going in and prior to the robberies. Um, So this was already a, you know, I guess a dysfunctionally thinking brain, if you believe that a dysfunctionally thinking brain behaves in ways that just make you shrug, right? And, and we all we all have people in our lives that are like, why the hell do you act like that? Well, I mean, the best answer you can give to that question is that person's belief system is forcing them to behave. Belief fosters behavior so you know before i get into to so many of the sayings that bob used to say because i don't want to get ahead of myself i want to sort of help you understand how i ended up at his door um it was because the job that i had started as i was working with at bally's and realizing that that place and, and the nutrition store. So I worked part-time in a nutrition store. I worked at Ballet's as a personal trainer. Both were part-time gigs, but I was I was doing decent work, probably working 30 hours, which was making probation crazy because they were just so insistent that I work 40, uh, 40 hours. But I kind of got the head of probation to understand and factor in all of my school time. And, you know, really on paper, when you looked at it, two part-time jobs and full-time student was probably more like two full-time jobs. So... It wasn't like I was lazy, you know, but Alba was still up my ass. Probation was up my ass. If the idea of probation was to just absolutely inconvenience you at every turn, that uh, achieved. They deserve an award. They deserve a, um, I don't know if you can hear, there's a plane flying right over my head right now. (laughs) Um, There's a private airport right in Boca where I am and all the rich people are flying in to spread COVID everywhere so thank you for that um but no uh i was uh, i i went to a, a job interview at uh sports club la and for those of you that don't know that as a trainer going to sports club la this was it was in the ritz carlton in downtown boston beautiful club i mean you were on treadmills overlooking the commons um, or overlooking just beautiful sections of the city, the financial district down in Boston. And I went for an interview there, and it was the first time that I had ever done like a practical, which was, um, you know, here's a group exercise instructor, put her through a workout, tell me what you do. And I put her through a typical, you know, press, benching, put her on some machines. There was nothing elevated in, in, in the programming that I, that I did for this club. And, you know, I didn't hear from them again. They didn't hire me, but... Leaving that interview, I, I grabbed a paper and I opened up the Help Wanted section and the Gold Gym in Salem, Massachusetts was looking for assistant managers. 
and I jumped on it. So I called him. And right away, uh, the general manager answered, and she's like, come on in for an interview. Can you come right now? And I was like, yeah, I just left an interview. Let's go. And I brought my resume in, and boom, hired. I had an offer within a couple of days. It was the first time really in my life that I was offered a salaried position um, with benefits and vacation and room to grow. And, like, this was this was a huge deal for me. Now, I'm living with my grandmother at the time. I still have my mom's house. Still don't know what I'm going to do with that. Um, a lot of stress. I was, st- But it was a cool little place to go and chill. Like I, You know, I wish I still had mom's house. But it wouldn't have been fair to keep that house and, get, you know, get whaled in property taxes just so I have a little cool spot to burn a fire in. I mean, come on. So eventually I begin the process of selling that. And, and that... That was hard because I had to do it alone. I had to do it by myself. And going through mom's house and all of her stuff and all of the stuff that she kept in the basement, you know, it was it was a burden, but uh, and and very painful. I'm not gonna lie. Um, I ended up having an estate sale where I just had, you know, it's a yard sale where you let people into your house. You know, the reason you there's a reason you have a yard sale and it's out in your yard because none of the people that come into the yard sale are people you want in your house. You know, just put so you know, and there there was a lot of stuff that I didn't end up selling of my mom, some of the furniture that I couldn't get rid of that I brought down to my grandmother's house, to Babunya's in Saugus. And she had, you know, a decent amount of space. There was a couple of things that I kept. I kept a couple boxes of the ornaments that Bupchi used to make, the Christmas ornaments, the handmade with beads and pipe cleaners. I mean, that woman, it, <laughs> she just was so creative. So, so creative. Making the afghans. She used to uh, knit afghans for us, like heavy, heavy, heavy wool afghans and, and just designer colors and... Um, super creative. It was just a shame that woman was so mean because I could have learned I could have learned a lot from her, but she was just always like, you know, she never let you sit down next door and let me fill your brain with my knowledge. It was always get the hell away from me. Um, go clean your room. Like just the children should be seen and not heard kind of mentality, which you know didn't really endear anybody to her. Certainly not me. So. Um, Getting this job was huge for me. It was just it was a it was a ray of light in a a, a situation that um, it seemed I was going to end up just being a, a trainer, you know, for Bally's, a lunkhead, just trying to you know sling training. <laughs> Who needs training, man? I got two. I I just was unbelievably excited and grateful for the opportunity. So when I started this job, it was full-time. They hired another kid. So there were two assistant managers and the general manager. And the other kid was was the type of person who was Middle Eastern, not that that matters about anything, but they just have a way about them that makes them awesome um, at, you know, I, I want to say customer service, but that's so racist, but he was fucking amazing at it. The guy was super friendly, made you feel amazing. People just bragged about him and but had no technical skill, didn't know, couldn't personal train. The value that I was to the to the Gold's Gym was 
they had trainers on staff. Nobody was seeing more than one or two clients. I walk in there and they said, hey, above your 40 hours, you can train as much as you want. So I started training like 20 hours. I started training a ton, man. It was so easy to get clients there. It was so, I don't know. Another, another part of my personality that I never really understood or acknowledged because um, I didn't think it was there, but I don't know, the ability to get people to trust me, that I knew what I was doing, that I knew what I was talking about when it came to their body and, and how to train it. And I'm not saying I was better than anybody else. Certainly, probably worse, but I could, I could talk it. And I started doing really well with that. And so my value to this company was I could go to any one of your revenue sources and do it. I could teach classes. Well, that's a, that is a multifaceted employee where then you had him who could sell memberships and his sales were fantastic because he had people skills. And my people skills actually hurt me. They weren't skills. They were detractions. They were ter I had terrible people skills. I mean, my sarcasm was so biting. Uh, m most of the times that I thought that they knew I was kidding, they were, they were fuming. I mean, I did a tour with this couple, and I remember walking because we had this woman's only, and she wanted to go see the woman's only, and he went down to see the regular weights. And I brought her through... Um, the woman's only section, and because she was waiting for me, because I had another tour before them, she had gone through the woman's room herself, and she told me that. And I said, okay, well, let me just show you some distinctive features. And as we were walking out, I was like, and this is my favorite part of the tour, but you ruined that for me because you've already been through here. And it was a joke. She did not take it that way. And as a matter of fact, they went out of their way to call my boss and say, hey, I wouldn't buy <laughs> a membership from him if you guys were the only gym and they found out that exercise cured cancer. I mean, they were adamant that the reason they were not going to pay money to go to that club, even though they loved it, was me. And that happened more than once. So understand that I love this job. It meant the world to me. I was making actually really good money. I was respected by the owners. They loved me because, of course, I made them money. So, I mean, I think the lesson that I learned at Bally's right, right away as a trainer was, hey, sling some cash and you get noticed and you can start, uh, you have more power as an employee when, when you are one of the main revenue generators. And that, that's what, why I, early in my career, just said, hey, screw anatomy. Unless you can, you can tell me that knowing the biceps femoris hamstring muscle is going to help me make money. And it didn't. People didn't give a shit about the hamstring. They just said, hey, I want to come here. I want you to tell me what to do. And then I want to go home. So it was starting to get to the point where I needed to do something or I was going to lose my job by the fifth or sixth sit down with ownership about the fact that some customer, and I'll, t I'll give you another example of what somebody just absolutely fell to pieces over and cried in the general manager's office after this happened. There was a woman that used to come up to the front desk and she would ask advice. And I think I trained her once or twice, but she wasn't a woman that had a ton of money for training. And she had dropped off a little for a couple of weeks and when she came back she came up to me and she says hey brian how you doing well you know i just have to say over the holidays i just ate and ate and ate and i gained about 20 pounds 
and it's really depressing. So what do I do? And I, we had had so many conversations like that, that at that point, even today, I, I would be annoyed by that question. Cause you know what you gotta do, get off your ass and start moving. I mean, that, that's just, that's number one. I don't care what it is you're doing at that, at that point right now, you need to just get up and move your body. So that's what I said to her. And oh my God, she just fell to pieces in my body. She's he's so insensitive. Why could like she was actually waiting for me to be like, oh my God, you poor thing, you gained twenty pounds. Give me a hug. Not you, don't come to me for that, Matt. You will not get that from Sobolewski training. No, now you would, because I, you know, listen, it's tough. It's tough not to to eat your emotions, especially if you're going to be around family. Why do you think we we force you to be around your family? but have to include 17,000 calories on a plate for you to just, it's basically just carving you into submission so you can stay in your family long enough and, you know, add alcohol to that. And yeehaw. So it was getting to the point where, and I had been in therapy post prison. I had two therapists, um, one of them was valuable. He was good because he sort of, he sort of tapped into the adult child of an alcoholic side of me. So for those of you that don't know what that is, the adult child of an alcoholic is a whole study and movement. There was a, a, a spinoff of AA that dealt with, um, that dealt with this subset of, you know, or these, these spinoffs of people that people that were alcoholics that created children, <laughs> Which exact which fit me to a T, and he and he brought up a very interesting point that adult children of alcoholics tend to be very numb, and they enter adulthood and they enter adolescence numb, meaning there's not a range of emotions. So he got up and he drew on this board. This this these little tiny imagine like these little tiny ant hills, and he drew them linearly across a board, and he said this is a normal person's span of emotions throughout a day. You know, you're up a little bit, you're down a little bit, you know, but you're, you're, it's a very tranquil sea. And he said, well, you know, alcoholics tend to be all over the place. And then he drew this big spiky graph, you know, looked like the stock market crash of the 1930s. Or I don't know when the re most recent one was, but probably yesterday. And um, said, you know, Ideally, you want to have a emotional range that doesn't send you all over the globe. He said, but adult children of alcoholics. And then he drew like that flat line. Those people are dead. They're just numb. And some of the reasons he said that adult children use is they want to feel. So they want to be depressed. They'll drink depressants. Uh, you know, they'll drink alcohol. You know, they want to feel psychotropic, although I don't really understand the classification of marijuana as a psychotropic or whatever it's classified as. It just doesn't, I don't know. I, it almost seems like they classify it where it is because they have no other place for it. Um, you want to feel overstimulated, you'll do amphetamines or get addicted to cocaine. So there you go, bingo. That's That would explain to you my appeal or the, co the appeal of cocaine or stimulants to me is because I've always been a depressed kid and it, anything that elevated me out of that um, was amazingly appealing. So, you know, after I kind of got a sense of, geez, you know, 
I don't experience emotions the same way as other people. I could sit there and, you know, say to you, go fuck yourself with it, just a straight face. Part of that's the Boston attitude, if you want to blame that bullshit. But um, I don't experience emotions the same way a normal person would. You, you get enough of these people out there. There are enough people out there that are adult children of alcoholics. Kind of gives you a sense of why you may struggle against understanding the person next to you in traffic that doesn't see the big flashing lane, left lane closed and still rides that left lane right until the lat, right until right in front of that flashing sign. The person I want to get out and just punch in the neck. Um, you know, it it, it helped. It definitely helps me understand that a little bit more or them a little bit more. And any anything that furthered my understanding of humanity and quote unquote normal people was a plus. I have always been a student of human behavior and normalcy. I'll go and I will go. I used to all revel in being that guy going to Thanksgiving that, you know, you just invited because you felt bad for. But I would go because I get to watch a family. I get to watch normal people, and by normal, I got to say, just people that hadn't been to prison because their father, brother, and robbed jewelry stores. You know, that that's the, the, the standard I'm creating here. This this is a piece of the puzzle of figuring me out that, that should help you understand um, that not only have I never felt normal, but I seek to, to study it understand it and it always baffles me man you normal people baffle the shit out of me but what am i gonna do I, what i have to i i have to interact with you you know and I understand that there's still there's a piece of this where as a personal trainer as a manager of a gym selling memberships um it is definitely opposite of the plan that i had for myself once i got out so once I, when I went into prison, I had my New Hampshire Technical Institute grad, um, degree, associates in human services with a major in substance abuse counseling. I was going to get licensed, but um, certainly couldn't have begun that process because, you know, I ended up sitting in the clink. Dur you know, you, you heard about how much I read in prison and how much I prepared myself for moving forward in that career that I felt I was going to go and I was going to go for a doctorate. I wasn't going to stop. And now I'm in a career at Gold's Gym, you know, graduating from Salem State with with my bachelor's. And that's when um, that volunteer experience I told you about in episode three being ex-con in America season one, where they escorted me out of the building when I was there to volunteer for them. So long story short, I went as a, uh, for one of my social work classes, because I was getting a degree in psychology and a minor in social work, was that I had to volunteer for a social um, charity that would be considered social work. And I went to the Boys and Girls Club in downtown Salem, and they just got, uh, they, somebody donated an old gym to them must have been a little tiny mom and pop gym that closed down and they had tons of equipment all thrown in this room and I was given this contact by my teacher my professor of a social work class and she said go you know and do this and they were like hey if you want to go set up the gym kids are dying to use it we would love it 
And as I, my first day up there, after I filled up my Corey and told the truth, I didn't put that I had been ever convicted because they didn't ask for the Corey form. It just says, hey, what's your name and what's your social security number and sign that you understand that we're going to do a background check on you. And boom, they went on their way. And I was going to, I was hoping, I hoped that, you know, at the very least, um, it would be a random random checks but no they checked everybody that came in the door and as i was up kind of sweeping and moving some stuff around in the vision that i had for their weight room two huge men the biggest men in the building they could find escorted me out came up and said you gotta go you're a convicted felon and that certainly you could add that to the heap of shit that i was emotionally already you know stuffing you know, there was so much pain and so much anger and so much anguish that I have stuffed my entire life that I will tell you again, part of the reason that, that I am apprehensive to open certain doors is because I don't think I'm ever going to come. I won't ever come out. So, you know, and it's dumb. And I know that it's it's almost like me saying, hey, I have tight quads. I need to stretch them, but I'm just not going to stretch them. I'm in pain and I know that stretching them will help me, but I'm not going to do it. It's the same thing, is that I need to sit down and cry for like six years. I need to not stop because I'm going to tell you what's happening to me now. I'm going to tell you what's happening to me right now that I cannot stop. Is that I, I, an AT&T commercial will, will send tears screaming down my cheek. Like, And this is something that I have absolutely learned from therapy and from determinism is that good luck keeping that shit down. Good luck. You know, emotions are like trying to keep an inflated beach ball under ocean water, under beach. Like go out into the beach, take out an inflated ball and go out and try to submerge it and hold it there. Good luck. It's going to pop up somewhere else. So all of the struggles that I'm having at Gold's Gym at this point are due to the fact that that beach ball keeps surfacing and I'm dumping my anger on some poor unsuspecting person that's just trying to tort a gym. And I'm like, hey, I want to dump a little bit of shit on you. All of these things, all of the stuff that I mentioned prior in this episode and in prior episodes lead to me opening up the phone book. So, and one more thing, there was one more straw. I fell in love. And and I'm going to, I want to save that story for uh, episode six because um, it deserves its own um episode but within this entire um, sequence of events Brian manages to fall in love and it was really the first time I had a high school girlfriend named Ellen Wozniak and I thought I loved her we had a we had a very interesting history and we'll talk about her when we do this episode next week but um all of those things prompted me to open the phone book and start looking. And I opened it up and, and I was looking for a very specific, not that I was looking for a very specific ad. I was looking for something in any of the ads that I saw in the yellow pages. And yeah, this is back when you had to have a phone book, open it up, look it up and understand the alphabet so you can, <laughs> so you knew things were done, you know, where you could find something. There was one ad that said, hey, do you need a therapist that will provide feedback in a way that is constructive and will help you in your day-to-day life? Boom. 
done. So I couldn't pick up the phone fast enough. I remember I was working at the nutrition store the first day that I called. And I called him up. And, and instantly, I will tell you that Bob got into, you know, the tenants. He got right into an explanation of, um, of what he did. And he said, you know, everything in nature is worthy of respect, including all persons. Um, people are totally selfish. You know, and he kind of gave me a little bit of an overview of some of the stuff that I have read to you before. And I'm going to read it to you again. We'll go over those real quick again. But he said, the first session with me is an interview. And I want you to come in with your questions. And I want to be able to answer those questions. And to the extent that I answer them and you want to move forward, we can prorate the hour. So if you ask 15 minutes of questions, I'll charge you for 45 minutes if we decide to delve into it. And he says, if you decide not to work with me, then you, you go away. Nothing nothing ventured, nothing gained. And no, no cost. So I was like, all right, I'll come in for an interview. No therapist had ever, ever, ever asked me that so if you make an appointment with a therapist right now and it's been a while for me i don't know but i imagine you're gonna you're right away getting charged the full boat because you're gonna the expectation is you're going in you're gonna sit down and you're going to do some form of talk therapy for whatever reason you called right that makes sense so i'm good i'm i'm i schedule an appointment with bob and i'm ready to go and um I, I end up showing up to that appointment and it was in a, there were lots of little strip. Beverly is a very, very eclectic New England town. And there's North Beverly, there's parts of Beverly that um, I wouldn't call poor, but are very blue collar. And then there are Beverly Farms, which is, you know, that this is one of those obnoxious situations where a part of Beverly that was so rich decided they're going to rename themselves because they didn't want to be associated with the hoi polloi of the regular Beverly. You know, but just the really gothic churches and, you know, neat little places, the bed, not bed and breakfast, but neat little breakfast place, you know, a whole in the wall breakfast place with two tables. You can go and just have a fantastic breakfast or um, there's a cute little Italian place that had an old, old, old fashioned movie theater. Um, just a cute little town. And he was in uh, right near where there was a commuter rail stop from people that wanted to commute into Boston. And he was right across the street from there in this little tiny strip mall type of thing. Had a couple stores in the bottom. You went in this middle door that brought you up a flight and there were offices up there. And these, you know, there was a lawyer that worked across from Bob. Bob just rented out this room, went down this long hallway. And I described the hallway to you because I would bring myself to those therapy sessions with my neurotic side my inner child, whatever you whatever you want to call it, kicking and screaming. No, I don't want to go in there. I hate it in here. I hate it in here. And, you know, so much of the therapy that I did with Bob, um, he made it a point to acknowledge the fact that I go into therapy kicking and screaming. So it, it's just hilarious that... Uh, so I go, down, I go down the hallway and I meet Bob, and Bob's an egghead. Bob's an absolute egghead. He's a computer software engineer, you know, uh, went to Harvard, you know, and he has that air of uh, superiority. Almost, almost like a scumbag. Seriously, it, there, that's, there, there was that little tiny piece of him 
that was um, cocky. Not, and there was a confidence in his ability as a practitioner, but there was also a little weave of cockiness, which is why um, we've had, we had some very rocky sessions. So I go in there, Mr. Psychology, with multiple degrees, and, and you know they, they tell you that in an interview, you don't want to talk about yourself. You're there to talk about the other person, the person that you want to hire. But I ended up talking about myself. I ended up sort of giving him my resume. Almost like, hey, I got a couple of psych degrees. You know, I've been to therapy before. So uh, good luck, buddy, trying to throw anything past me. You know, just I almost tried. And maybe my reading of his cockiness was mine, right? You can't see something in somebody else you don't have. And that was always the brilliance of Marcel. Like if you're if you think you're an effective anything and you're looking at somebody and you're like, hey, I see how angry you are. I can tell how angry you are. Well, that's because you're angry, or you know, in in a in the past you had struggled with it and maybe had come to terms with it and maybe even changed it. But I got to tell you, it's just unlikely. Change in the personality is unlikely to happen, right? I would say that changing while going through a course of therapy is as likely as you getting shredded by going and paying money for a personal trainer. You got $100 an hour for a therapist, I'll tell you what, $100 for a personal trainer, until I developed my own method of exercise and and my own way of looking at what exercise should do, uh, I couldn't help anybody. Nobody got shredded on my watch and they paid me thousands of dollars. You know why? It's unbelievably hard until you change the way that you look at the situation, change the way that you look at the body, change the way that you look at the personality. And that's what this was. This, this was an in-depth look, an in-depth look of let's mine out your actual beliefs. And, and you know, that's a multivaried system. There's a lot of things in a person's belief system, but I'm, I'm most notably talking about the beliefs about yourself. And everybody had that tape and has that tape in their head that tells them things about them in the world. Is your tape, oh, you idiot, you fucked up, stop it. Or is your tape, hey, don't worry about it, man. Everybody makes mistakes. You know what, we're gonna learn from it, we're gonna move on. Well, you, you probably have a mixture. I do not. I think a lot of people that struggle do not know or are not listening to or are not able to combat that tape in their head. That tape is super important and it was for me. It was for me in, in being able to acknowledge what it was saying, um, whether or not what it was saying was correct. So, so, you know, you can listen to a tape for so long and not ask any questions back. And, and these are the things that need to happen, in my opinion and in the opinion of determinism, before you can actually change a person. So as, as we discussed last time, and real quick, uh, the tenets of this specific type of psych- psychology, you know, determinism, you know, tenant one, everything in nature is worthy of respect, including all persons. Respect is representing an attitude, thought, and feeling resulting from understanding the concept of total determinism applied to humanity this implies there but for the differences in our determinants go I. Huge, huge, but 
We'll make that much easier in a second. All persons are totally selfish. This makes sense when we define selfishness neutrally to mean responding to one's own motivations or determinants. So when you think of but there but for the differences in our motivations go I. So there are different people have different motivations. The question of whether, whether one's actions are selfish or unselfish thus becomes irrelevant. The real issue is whether one's actions are intelligently, healthy, and socially selfish, or stupidly, neurotically, and antisocially selfish. There are no bad people, only persons who have greater or lesser degrees of mental health. Well, that I struggled with, that tenant I struggled with. Healthy behavior is social, equitable, tolerant, cooperative, and respecting to all. To the extent that they are neurotic, the powerful tend to mislead, deceive, or lie to the weak. Parents tend to corrupt. Another thing that I had multiple arguments and uh, you know almost came to blows. I had a session where I almost hit Bob. Power brings out corruption or neurotic behavior. All concepts of heaven, hell, purgatory, limbo, and the like are false. There is no anthropology homorphic God with a knowledge of concern and plan for individual organisms. And this is again the, in, in the attempt uh, to apply the scientific method to psychology, to the psych, to the soul. How much of this can we actually look at scientifically? And believe me, it, it happens. It, it, they do it. <laughs> they do it. So unconscious motivations, you know, the title of this and, and um, where we're going with understanding what really motivates a person, right? So each of us is born with a brain that has its unique and innate proclivities, capacities, strengths, and weaknesses. The brain has an unconscious portion that regulates at least such things as digestion, heartbeat, and respiration. It also regulates hormone production. The chemicals and electricity in the primitive part of our brains react to sensory experiences, both on a hardwired level, suck on a nipple, and as we learn from experience, biting leads to an unpleasant response. It is unlikely that childhood trauma have a lasting effect on the unconscious. Oh, it is likely, sorry. It is likely that childhood traumas have a lasting effect on the unconscious and even on brain chemistry, okay? Factors such as brain chemistry, hormones, and unconscious memories that may be stirred up by present day situations all have an effect on our feelings, thoughts, and behaviors. Effects that in many, perhaps most cases, may be unknown to the person experiencing them. These factors are not within our control and certainly are not the result of our own deliberate making. Huge! Wow! My God! I'm gonna read it again. See, the, and I have such a... I do have a psychological uh, block. Like, I almost stutter when I read out loud. It always freaked me out. Like, even when I was doing AA and they would read a step, I would be like, okay, which paragraph are they going to make me read? So wherever I was in the room, I'd count and be like, okay, I'm going to and look ahead and look at my paragraph, and I would read it, and I would still fuck it up. Like, I get, uh, I get, re I get public reading anxiety. 
Okay, so let's just, I'm just going to go over that again. Each of us is born with a brain that has its unique and innate proclivities, capacities, strengths, and weaknesses. The brain has an unconscious portion that regulates at the least such things as digestion, heartbeat, and respiration. It also regulates hormone production. The chemicals and electricity in the primitive part of our brain brains reacts to sensory experiences both on a hardwired level level suck on a nipple and as we learn from experience biting leads to an unpleasant response do you see the difference of those things there are things that are innate like i you know nobody taught you how to suck on a nipple right you don't remember mom saying okay well here's a nipple and you're gonna put your mouth on it but experience can hardwire you, right? That you bite somebody, you get an unpleasant response. Why don't you bite anybody anymore? You used to bite people as a baby. Why don't you do it anymore? Well, your brain learned people don't like it until you start having sex. And, you know, some people get back into it. So <laughs> it is likely that childhood trauma have a lasting effect on the unconscious and even on brain chemistry. Bob used to say to me, when you get hit, when a child gets hit, their brain becomes hardwired to respond to that. Everything about it, the raising of the hand, the actual hit, the recoiling of the hit. Does it make any sense to you why I recoil from, from human touch and human uh, closeness? It, I, I get repelled from it. It repels me. I do not like it most of the time at times i do like it factors such as brain chemistry hormone and uh, hormones and unconscious memories that have that may be stirred by present day situations all have an effect on our feelings thoughts and behaviors effects that in many perhaps most may be unknown to the person experiencing them is that amazing? That's just amazing to me that there's so much in your brain going on. Like digestion. How much do you sit and think about digestion? Well, it's happening without you knowing it. So with that said, there has to be a portion of your brain that is harboring shit you don't know about or you haven't really thought about. So let me just give you an, a, an example of the depth we're talking about here when we're talking about the brain like what is a dream why do we sleep and and why do we dream two things that are are cool things to to sort of think about as you're as you're wondering hey do i have an unconscious and is it doing things behind the scenes that i don't know about according to this according to most of psychology i think most people understand the that that the idea of the unconscious but um you know what do you do about it and that's one of the things that that determinism was so good it's just so good at helping me um figure out it was a it was a good cold hard look at unconscious motivations now next paragraph we're going to read um Unconscious factors affect our decision-making process in both large and small ways. How many times do we think we could have made a better decision 
but for the strong emotions or stress we were feeling in the moment. On a simpler level, the phone number we forgot today, but remember tomorrow is in our brain, but unconscious for the time being. This flat fact may play a role in forcing us to take the time to pick up the phone book or to simply skip a call we otherwise would have made. So again, really simple way to put that um, there's a lot of things going on inside most people's brains that affect why they do things. So you could probably name a thousand. You could probably name a thousand. All right, so I'm gonna, I'll give you one of mine. The other day I got back from comedy. I was feeling really, really good. And I haven't had McDonald's in 25 years. 25 years. And I ordered a double cheeseburger meal and loved it. It was absolutely amazing. But so much of the decision to get that and while I was eating it and so many of the flavors brought me 25 years back, but even further to when I was a kid, I used to eat this shit by the, by the truckload. Fast food became a very, very quick um, addiction for me as a kid to, you know, it was very um, satisfying for my brain to get that salt, fat and sugar. As it was the other day, it tastes exactly the same. And so if you want to time capture yourself back, go back to a fast food restaurant that you frequented as a kid and eat that meal. You may still be doing it. But um, in terms of the things that it touched on in my unconscious, just that meal, just that cheeseburger hitting my mouth. So when I tell you that um, that thera this therapy saved my life, it, it is because it did its best to go deep into that unconscious and pull some shit out that I didn't want to look at. And that's why I went to every, every single session with Bob kicking and screaming every single one. And, and, and so, so many parts of me were like, he's not going to know he's never dealt with an ex con before. He doesn't deal with this. He's never had a family that robbed jewelry stores. And again, I still, I, I stand by that. And two, two people I respect most in my life, have both told me, I don't know what to tell you, bro. Yeah, your situation sucks. And they'd never seen anything like it. And, and they don't know what it's done to me. They wouldn't be able to sit and say, hey, I have, clear, I have a clear idea of, of why you behave this way. Nobody. So you got to understand that that makes me feel very, very different. That's the reason why there is a part of me that will never feel normal and will always be amazed by people that do normal shit. And it also, it hurts a lot to, when I sit and watch people engage in the normal shit that's, that's like force fed to you, like the holidays. I'm psyched that it's January. I hate December. I hate November. I hate those holidays that say, hey, you need to, it's about family. They, they spoon feed you that bullshit. Um, and it's hard to hear. It's hard, it, it's hard to ignore that, that, that's the time of year and that you're not involved in that and it makes you just feel very separate then so long story short here guys as we wrap up uh my first the interview with bob i think i asked him where he went to school and then he you know he went over the tenants and he didn't go to school he was taught by peter gill and peter gill is the guy that invented or came up with determinism and there was way more stuff online back when I did it 20 years ago, maybe even 30 years ago at this point. And um, 
now there's sparse stuff. So the stuff that I'm reading to you is what I found on an old computer, like I said. So um, we're still we're still going to continue to comb through this stuff. But the interview, I, I think I took like 15 minutes before I said, no, let's go. Let's do this. Uh, I already felt challenged. My back was against the wall. Every single time I sat in Bob's office, I would get a tea beforehand. I'd do all these things to try to calm myself. But I went in there with my back up, anxiety flared, because I knew that guy was going to dive down into something that I didn't want to pull out. But that thing that I went down and pulled out was a huge motivator and a huge reason why I was doing shit like freaking out on people that were trying to tour a gym. People that I would hope would eventually pay me money to help them get to whatever fitness goal. Well, I was I was losing them. I was losing them to a guy, my my assistant, the other assistant manager, was picking up all the shit that I couldn't see sell because they didn't like me, he was getting. And that bothered me a lot. So, so knocking on Bob's door, making that call, engaging in determinism, um, I will tell you to this day, saved my life. And, and it is stuff that I still practice. I still try to follow the tenets that I have read to you multiple times. So um, I'm going to wrap it up there. The next episode, episode six, is going to be about Johanna. I don't know. She might even listen because, God, I just picked up Romania. I just picked up Romania as uh, people that are listening to the podcast. So it's like 15, 16 countries, maybe even more that are listening. And I'm, maybe it's, uh, again, I don't know what it is. It might be bots that are clicking on it, making me feel good that the Family Jewels podcast is being listened in other places. But On Eventbrite, ladies and gentlemen, I should have started with this, but on Eventbrite, there is a show called Sentenced to Stand Up. It is my show. It is the first chapter of me developing the one-man show, the Family Jewels uh, podcast comedy tour, which I hope to launch at some point in my life, get out on the road and start and start bringing this to the masses. I got people listening to the podcast. A couple of people have reached out to me from other places that started listening. They're binging on it. They're loving it. They love the comedy. I got some comedy here for you. I got some stories that I did at uh, Sick Puppies Doghouse Theater in Delray. Uh, Casey and Tom, both big helps. And, and I'm playing these. You've probably heard a lot of the jokes before. There's a couple jokes in here that you have not heard, but I want you to just note that, that and I hope you can pick up on the fact that I'm trying to be as brief as possible, get to points quicker, get on and off stage and try to get as succinct as possible the details of a story without lingering the way that I do in these podcasts. I'm close to an hour here on this episode. But... um. I feel like, and I'm very excited about the fact that the, this getting up as much as I have on a weekly basis, this type of, of comedy, this type of storytelling, which challenges you to tell a story on the fly, has helped me a lot. I really, and I, so I hope you, you hear the difference in the story and what I'm going to play. I had the microphone right next to me, so I don't think there are going to be audio issues, but uh, so I hope you can hear everything and you enjoy it. And I will be back next week, guys, for uh, episode six. I'm going to talk about love. Peace out. Hey, everybody. How's it going? Good. Welcome, welcome. Can you hold on for just one second? Just one second. <laughs> no, that's good. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. That was beautiful, dude. <laughs>
<laughs> welcome, welcome, welcome to Doghouse Theater, everybody. Give yourself a round of applause for coming out. Woo! So happy you guys are here. Wow. What is going on in the world? Let me tell you guys what, um, what happens here. I know a lot of you open the door and you're like, what the fuck? Did I just walk into somebody's living room? Um, kind of, because some of us do sleep here at night. But that's not what we're here to talk about. Uh, we do uh, stand-up comedy classes here, we do improv classes here, we do shows, uh, so definitely check out our website to see, you know, maybe you think you're funny, um, you can come here and find out if that's true. So, uh, welcome to the show, Friday night show is super, super fun, I'm glad you are here, is everybody happy? Yeah! yeah. Right. If you need anything, please either get up and help yourself to it, you can pay us later, um, otherwise, if you need anything, please let me know. My name is Brian, and I'll be your host. I'll be coming up here a couple times tonight, so don't get sick of me yet. Um, so, just to start off, about 10 years ago, somebody said, hey, when you die, you're reunited with family. That's when I started warming up twice a day. <laughs> started watching what I ate. Became a vegan. Because that's it, man. I'm only doing one round with these people. I'm not going again. I'm just not doing it. I'm sorry. My family sucked. Did anyone have a dysfunctional family here? Yeah. Right, anyone have a clap if you had a functional family? That's right. That's right. I get it. I get it. Did you just clap? Yeah. You can go because you won't get any of this. Now, uh, I had a really dysfunctional family. My mother was, was crazy, man. Anyone have a psychotic mother? Like, um, but she was a lot of fun, I can tell you that. My mother was a lot of fun. Like the time that uh, I asked her to get me green paint to paint me for the Hulk for Halloween, and um, I was about 10 pounds lighter than this at seven, haven't grown a whole lot since childhood. <laughs> since childhood. Uh, I actually look like I'm in the recreational phase of a meth addiction, if you look real close. Like I'm just trying it out to see how it is. Do I like this stuff? I'm not really sure. But um, I asked my mom at the beginning of the month to get me green face paint to paint me as the Hulk. And she didn't do it. So by October 31st, when I asked her for it, she said no. And I knew I was going to be the Hulk. I lost my shit. Had a full-blown uh, tantrum attack right in front of my mother. And my mother was not the person to do that shit with. <laughs> but her remedy was to go into the kitchen under the sink and find white shoe polish, poured it into a bowl, pulled out some green food coloring, and boom, Bryce the Hulk. I'm pretty sure my liver wasn't shut down by the third house. Like my, my body was rejecting this, this coloring, but I won, I don't know if I won every single costume cost, uh, contest that night because of pity or because I wasn't liver failure, but I hauled a lot of candy home. And, and that's just a snapshot of my mom. Now my dad raised my brother and I to be criminals because I knew my Miranda rights before I knew any nursery rights. <laughs> like, I remember my dad sitting us down and saying, Jack and Jill went up a hill, neither had representation. It's <laughs> like, okay, what happened next? Well, Jack fell down and Jill took the rap because she didn't have a lawyer and she talked to the cops and you know, it just fell apart from there. But when I say that, I, that my dad raised my brother and I to be criminals, 
The first thing that we stole is probably something you wouldn't even notice. It was a house. Yeah, it was a house. Let me explain how you steal a house. We actually only stole about two thirds of a house. My dad couldn't afford another house after he divorced my mom, so instead he bought a piece of land, had the foundation poured, we put a cap on it, and we lived inside that foundation on weekends. And at night, we drove around the construction sites and stole the rest of what we needed to build the house. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm the reason, my family is the reason for same day delivery and install. <laughs> seriously, seriously, that's us. Because if you did not install that shit the same day as you had it delivered, we put that shit in our house. Yeah, that was ours. So it shouldn't surprise you. I do a, a podcast called Family Jewels, and uh, I'm in season three. It's not about my dick. Yet. <laughs> we'll see how it goes. Um, but it is the story of how my father, brother, and I robbed jewelry stores all over New England. And you're going to hear me later on talk about that. Um, a little tidbit of fun. But I'm gonna bring up your first comedian. You guys ready? Yeah. Who am I bringing up? I forget. Talk. I know who I'm bringing up now. You guys ready? You guys are, you guys are in for a treat because I love this guy. Man. I really, really love this guy. This guy's super talented. You're gonna see him on this stage a whole bunch. He's wicked funny. Just looking at him, you're gonna start laughing. Please welcome Alex Avila. What is up, everybody? Y'all doing good? Wow, that's great. You guys hide in the spare room. Good for you. Good for you. Uh, I found out something today. I learned that I. <laughs> so go, go cure yourself, have some fun. Oh, yeah, I do the best. So you're, so you're, you're so cool. Man. I am. I've been, I've been hanging out at the nuclear power plant. You're so tall, Jesus. Look, I'm all better. <laughs> but I need to pee. operation we have here Douglas. <laughs> um, so just just so you know if there's any incidents we do have like two places you can exit from <laughs> that thing and the other and the other place um, so that's about it as far as safety goes uh, uh, ladies and gentlemen uh, your next comedian he's going to do something a little bit different uh, with you we are building his, uh, his one-man show, he has an excellent podcast called The Family Jewels uh, Podcast. It's a true story. He may or may not share what that's about with you. He's written a book. 
He's uh, become a very good friend of mine, and he is also uh, one of our instructors here doing uh, stand-up stuff, but he is going to improvise an entire story for you. So, before I bring Brian up to the stage, I need a word from any one of you that can inspire a true story that Brian will tell you. Any word, any, English would work, you know. You say watermelon? Great. Uh, watermelon is the word, ladies and gentlemen. Please welcome to the stage, Brian Sobolewski, everybody! <laughs> Remember me? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was right there. I know. And she, and she just put her purse down to make sure I don't do that again. Is what she, that was her, I just got <laughs> I just got seat blocked. Is what I just got. Okay, so we're, we're, we said watermelon, correct? Um, watermelon is absolutely one of my favorite things in the world. Um, before they were seedless watermelon. When I was a kid, we used to get it where literally every bite was about six seeds. You have to spit them out. <laughs> like you have to spit them out. And, um, but it was still one of my favorite things in the world as a kid. And it always reminds me of summer, right? Totally reminds you of summer. I'm going to bring you guys back to a summer robbery that we did. So the Family Jews True Crime Podcast is about the 22 robberies that my father, brother, and I did all over New England for five years. We did 22 stores in that time. And the third robbery was our biggest. So imagine finding Blackbeard's treasure and having it in your living room. I mean, that was the end result of the Burlington robbery. Now, the Burlington robbery was super... It was hard to do, guys. I gotta tell you, like, I'm the guy that you watch movies with, like, The Town. You guys have seen The Town, right? Ben Affleck, yeah, right? Ben Affleck is a badass in Charlestown. He's a Charlestown robbery. No. No, Ben Affleck is too good looking for Charlestown. I'm sorry, but if you ever met a Charlestown convict, his nose is over here. He could smell his own ear from the times that the cops rolled into Charlestown to question him about a robbery and they pounded his nose to the side of his face but he still wouldn't rat. That was the whole basis of the town. And I have to object with parts of the town because I'm the person that you sit down with during a movie and I'm like, no, no. So there's a scene in the town, and I love the town, it's one of my favorite movies, but there's a scene where Ben Affleck is in the interrogation room with an FBI agent. No. Like he's just a badass, he's just like, you guys with the curly fucking antennas. It just doesn't happen that way, guys. In the interrogation room, let me tell you what happens. They don't even accuse you of, the, of what they think you did. They accuse you of every crime that ever happened since the dawn of time. So the first five minutes I was in that interrogation room, I caught to the Lincoln and the Kennedy assassination. I was like, yeah, I did it, I'm sorry. So when, when we talk about the realism in those movies, the Burlington robbery was very, very difficult. And, and if you don't have an inside person, if there's not an inside person telling you how to manipulate these situations, you're in trouble. So I found myself standing in a parking lot of a Burlington parking lot. And this is Burlington, Massachusetts. I was in this parking lot next to this sedan. And on the back quarter panel of this sedan were three locks. And only one of them opened the trunk of the car where all of the jewelry was. 
The other two set off an alarm that was just loud as you could possibly imagine. And there was already a cop car in the parking lot. So imagine being in the middle of an armed robbery. We tied our um, victim, we taped him to a chair. And <laughs> this is kind of difficult to talk about because when my dad assigned me this role, he's like, okay, you're gonna tape the guy to a chair. I was like, fuck. Like this was before Google and you could YouTube. I'm sure if you YouTube right now, how to tape a guy to a chair, <laughs> 1,700 hits. I swear to God, but at the time, I just had a roll of duct tape. I went into the garage, I got a roll of duct tape, and I, and I look at it, and nowhere on this roll of duct tape was how many pieces of duct tape it takes to subdue a person to a chair. I was, listen, I, I, I was being realistic. I was hoping maybe they would say, hey, this is how much to, to tape a squirrel to a chair, and then I could adapt, like I could do some math. X equals his adult average size of a male, and then I could have some fucking idea, but I had none. So I went to bed very stressed before this robbery. <laughs> we had rented a store so this guy would feel comfortable coming to it, and we ended up getting him to the back, putting him into this chair, and I start taping him. I taped this guy, I taped tape. I taped tape that if you pulled on that tape, it would tighten the tape. I was taping so much that my dad had to tap me on the shoulder, and it's the same tap that you married couples know, guys, that when your wife taps you on the shoulder and you know, you're done, guy. You're not going to hit that spot tonight. It's just, it's just go to bed. Like, that kind of thing. like that's the tap I got from my dad. He's like, listen, no, 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 we're going to go to bed now. Let's, let's just get out of here. I have no idea what my point is. What was it, watermelon? <laughs> Anyway, guys, I don't want to take up any more of your time. I hope you listen to the podcast to hear just how many details are involved in that robbery. But, um, you know, it was super fun. It was a good time. And um, my advice to you guys is if you don't have an inside person, don't rob the fucking place. That's my <laughs> So now the improv troupe is going to come up. Thank you so much for listening. Duct tape, right? No. No duct tape at all, right? No. Aha. Uh -huh. But he's not.